Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of 2 Peter. Uh, Just a quick correction on one of those announcements. It is not just a family game day. So if you're a single and you like games, you are also welcome to to be a part of that. Do not be scared away. Um, We'd love that to be a chance for you to get to know some new people, to get to enjoy time with other people from the church here. So I'd encourage you, if you're into games, board games, card games, to, to make an effort to be here next Saturday. Well, before we begin this morning, we'll be reading from 2 Peter, chapter 1. We'll be starting a series here this morning in this book, which uh, likely, I'd be willing to bet, most of you have never heard a sermon series on. I can't remember ever hearing it, uh, but it's short enough to cover in the amount of weeks that we have, which is my really spiritual reason for picking it. <laughs> Second Peter, chapter 1, reading the first 11 verses. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the reign of terror begins. There we go. It took you a minute. Some of you got there. Um, uh, as I was talking with Rusty before he left on Friday, I told him that my plan is to change nothing and make sure I, I don't burn anything down in the process. So, so it, it's a pretty safe plan, I hope, just to, to maintain and, and hope that the building is still standing when he returns. Um, but, but part of that maintaining is that we're going to work through the book of Second Peter, at least here before the summer, together. So I want to start this morning by asking you a question. How would you feel if you were in a conversation with somebody, and in the midst of that conversation, they told you that they were a vegetarian? That's not the only... Did I just hear someone go, ugh? Well, that's not the end of the question. Um, They told you they were a vegetarian, but then just a few minutes later, they told you that last night they had their favorite meal, and that meal was steak. Probably be a bit confusing. Or, Or you were talking with somebody who told you that they were a university professor, and then proceeded to mention that they've never actually taught a class in anything. Or a a personal trainer who has never actually worked out themselves. Now, at the very best, if we want to be kind, you'd probably think that the person was confused. Uh, Or maybe if we want to be less kind, a little bit dumb, like maybe missing the point. Uh, Because we know that if somebody says that they are something, or that they believe something, that should be shown in how they live. So as we begin this series in 2 Peter this morning, we're going to see that what we believe as Christians must shape how we live. Or to put it another way, if you are truly a Christian, it will change you. Not might, it will change you. So we'll dive into a little bit of the background information on this book. It's helpful to understand a lot of the details. So this was, not surprisingly, written by the Apostle Peter which I promise you, I will say Paul a couple of times. I I mean Peter. Their names both start with P. They both wrote a bunch of stuff. It's hard. Um, So Peter was one of the 12 disciples who was with Jesus throughout his ministry. He was, as we see in the Gospels, the first of Jesus' disciples to confess him as the Son of God and the Messiah. 
He also, most famously, was the one to deny Jesus three times on the night before his crucifixion, but who was restored by Christ upon his resurrection. More than that, he was one of Jesus' inner three. He kind of had this this inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were uniquely close to him. They were the only three who got to see the transfiguration when Jesus took them up on a mountain and showed them his glory in a fuller way. They were the only three present when Jesus raised the daughter of a man named Jairus from the dead. And they accompanied Jesus further. On the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, he left the nine and he took these three further with him before he went a bit farther again. After Christ's death and resurrection, Peter became maybe the most important leader in the early church. He was the one who preached the sermon at Pentecost as the tongues of fire came down and they they preached in languages that people could understand. Peter preached a sermon that led to 3,000 people believing in Jesus and getting baptized. Then we also see that he actually was the leader of the church in Jerusalem until he had to flee in Acts chapter 12 for his life. All this to say, this letter was written by a guy who's pretty important. He is certainly one of the most important men in the history of the church. And this letter was written near the end of his life, sometime in the late 60s AD. Now, church tradition, so not the Bible, this might not be true, but church tradition has passed on that Peter died by crucifixion, just like Jesus. But the difference being that Peter, at his own request, was crucified upside down because he did not feel that he deserved to die the same way that Jesus did, given that he had denied him before his crucifixion. Whether that story is true or not, we understand the heart of this man. He wanted to worship and glorify his Savior. This letter, we're not 100% certain who it was actually written to. There's there's two options on the table. Uh, One of them is that it is the same audience as the letter of 1 Peter, which if you flip one page back in your Bible, right there, This is potentially implied because in 2 Peter 3, he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. In which case, it was written to the Christians that are in the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. None of you know where any of those are. I didn't either. Modern day Turkey. So below the the Mediterranean Sea, I think, is that how that place looks? Geography is not a strength. Um, Or... If this letter referenced in, in 2 Peter 3.1 is just a different generic letter that we don't know about, then it's clear from his beginning here that he's just writing this letter to Christians. It's kind of, as he's coming to the end of his life, his, his last opportunity to express to believers the things that he feels they must know. So the main message of this entire book, so if you want to be able to just like zone out for the next six, eight weeks, not pay much attention, here you go. This is the main message of the entire book of 2 Peter. That main message is that Peter is trying to teach us that a right faith necessarily leads to right practice. A right faith necessarily leads to right practice. Now, with all that background, some of you, especially if you're maybe here for the first time or newer to the life of the church, you might be wondering, why in the world would we take time to look at a letter that is 2,000 years old, written by some crazy guy who asked to be crucified upside down and wasn't even written to us. So the answer to that question, and it's vital to understand why we take the time to do what we're doing right now, is because we believe that even though the books of the Bible, all all 66 of them that make up this book here, were not written to us, they were written for us. We believe that the Bible is the word of God, that that every single word in here is true, that it was written by ordinary men who God, we use the word, inspired to write them. And so we believe that in this book, we find all that we need for life, for salvation. It, It is really the, maybe the most important document that exists for the Christian church. So with that established, let's begin looking at the letter here of 2 Peter I want to start by reading these first two verses again. He writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Okay, 
So, so for those of you who have spent a lot of time in church, spent a lot of time reading your Bible, let's be honest, we often skim these greetings, right? They, they can feel very samey, a little bit rote, a little bit repetitive, um, but that's not the case here. I actually want us to take a couple minutes and make three observations of Peter's greeting here. I think it, it gives us a good starting place as we dive into this letter. So the first observation I think we need to make is that Peter calls the faith of his readers one of, quote, equal standing with ours. And so given that just a sentence earlier, he identified himself as an apostle, I think that is the ours that he is regard, that he's talking about. He is saying that, that the apostles, these 12 men who, who walked with Jesus, who were the foundational cornerstones, really, of, of the Christian church after Jesus' ascension, the ones who did incredible miracles to testify to the reality of the message that they were sharing, the faith that they have, we, as normal Christians, have a faith of equal standing. Your faith, no matter how weak it may feel, is of equal standing with the apostles of Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to notice, though, is how our faith can be of equal standing, and that is the source that Peter gives us. It's a faith of equal standing that we've obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not by works, not by efforts, not by fruits, not by effectiveness. If you are a Christian, the faith that you have, you have obtained as a gift from God, an act of his righteousness to give you, you very normal 21st century person, a faith that is an equal standing to that of the apostles. And the third thing that we need to notice in this introduction is that Peter expects grace and peace to be multiplied to Christians in the knowledge of God. So chapter two of this letter, Peter takes a substantial amount of time to deal with false teachers, but his subtle attacks on them begin right now. There was a very popular false teaching, a heresy in the early church called Gnosticism. And amidst several other very anti-Christian ideas, the most important one that they held was that they believed in the reality of a secret knowledge that they had obtained, that had been revealed to them uniquely, that was necessary for salvation. So to be saved, you had to join their little group, and then they would share this knowledge with you, and you could begin your journey on to salvation. So right at the beginning of the letter, Peter is kind of taking his first shot. He's saying these Gnostics who say they have secret knowledge, no, 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 I am giving you the true knowledge, the, the knowledge that, that is actually going to be for your salvation. And as he'll make clear by the end of chapter one, he believes that true knowledge is found in the Old Testament and in the teachings of the apostles. Or to, to be more clear, he believes that true knowledge is found in the scriptures. More than that, he's gonna say that if you as a Christian want to grow in grace and peace, he expects that it will come through a deeper knowledge of God. And we'll see him say that clearly in our verses today. So with that foundation established in his greeting, let's take his next two verses together. Verses three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So here's a little tip for Bible study. Sometimes the most helpful words in any passage of scripture are also the shortest ones. These little, these little words that in English we call them prepositions, they're, they're the short words that join other ideas together, in, with, by, through. And often, there is a lot to be learned by paying close attention to the prepositions the biblical authors chose to use. So we're going to take these ideas that Peter is talking about one at a time, and, and we're going to look specifically at the prepositions he chose to use to connect them and learn what we can from those. So the first thing he says is that the Lord Jesus has given you everything that you need. He has granted to us, Christians, all things. 
But what he's talking about here is not a promise of earthly provision, right? We, we see those promises elsewhere in Scripture. But what Peter is dealing with here is that he has given us all things that pertain to life, by which I think we have to be clear, he's not talking about, like, just, just to continue to, to live, right? To keep our bodies functioning. Because, broadly speaking, unbelievers have what they need to keep on living. We call that common grace, that, that God gives grace to those even who reject him, that they can continue to live and breathe. And so the life that Peter is talking about here is eternal life. God has granted us everything that we need for eternal life, for salvation. Christ, in his divine power, has accomplished all that is needed to secure your eternal future, right? Because we are rebels against God's will. We sin, we disobey, we, we disregard, and, and really, we make gods of ourselves. But God, in his grace, sent his son, Jesus, who lived a life of perfect obedience, yet still went to the cross to die the death that we deserved. He paid our penalty on the cross. But after dying, he rose again from the dead. He defeated death. And when he defeated death in his resurrection, he guaranteed that for those who put their faith in him, they would have all that they need for eternal life. An eternal life that cannot be snuffed out by earthly death. His divine power has granted all that we need for eternal life. But Peter is not just saying that he has granted us what we need for the future. He's also saying that he has granted us what we need for the present, for godliness. What he's saying is that your ability as a Christian to obey God's commands has been granted to you by God himself. We call this the miracle of, of regeneration, of new birth, of being born again. Because apart from the work of God, none of us are able to obey his commands. I think if we honestly assess our hearts, we see that. We are a people who want to do what we want to do. We reject what is good if it means that, that we will feel better about what is happening around us. The Bible says that we are slaves to sin. Sin is our master, and we do what it tells us to do. But God steps in. And he does a miracle in his people that frees them from the slavery of sin so that they can obey. Christian, God in his divine power has done a miracle in you that allows you to be certain of your eternal life and follow his commands in your present one. Now all that you must do is act out this miracle. He has done the miracle and now you just live in the light of it. Live in the light of the, the truth that he has made you alive. He has made you born again. He has changed your will and set you free from sin. Peter even tells us how he does this miracle in a very practical way, how he continues to do that miracle in people to this day. And that's when we're going to look at our first preposition. Hear, hear what he says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God grants us all things we need for life and godliness through knowledge of him. I think there's two implications that we need to pull from this. The first one for our evangelism, because Christian, you should be sharing your faith. Now, I need, I need to throw out a quote that I've heard so many people use. Um, and, and, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I understand the heart behind it. I, I think there's, there's some truth to it that I will talk about in a moment. But, but we just need to be real about the fact that the quote, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, is not compatible with Scripture. It, the gospel is words. It, it is a proclamation. It is a message. Or... To use Peter's language here, it is a passing on of knowledge that Christ has died for sinners and he calls them to repentance and faith. It is through the knowledge of this reality that God calls others to life and godliness. Now, now here's my caveat. Your life should play a role in how receptive others are to hearing that knowledge from you, but your life can never save anyone. 
If they do not hear the message of the gospel, you can love them as well as you want, and they will never be saved. We must use words. There's also an implication, I think, for our own lives. Because I'm sure that if you're a Christian here today, you can think of a struggle with sin that you have in your life, that you know is sin, that you have confessed and brought to the Lord repeatedly, and that you continue to struggle with. The battle continues. You continue to fail and sin and go in confession and repentance and seek the Lord's strength and fail again. That is the Christian life. It's often not that victorious. We struggle. And so I think the implication here is that we must strive to battle it. Absolutely. Do everything in your power to fight the sin that is in you, but don't neglect the crucial role of knowing Christ better. I've seen this in my own life. I mean, I never realized how harsh my own speech was until I understood the gentleness of Jesus. I never understood how much I failed to love my wife as I ought to until I understood Christ's self-sacrificial love for his bride, the church. I never realized how proud I was until I understood Christ's willingness to be humiliated, to humble himself for his people, to die, to take our sin. But as I understood these things better, and I came to God in confession with a fuller understanding of just how broken I was in those ways, I have watched as he has used those times of confession and repentance and deeper understanding to change my heart, to look more and more like Christ's. This came through knowledge, through a disciplined reading and study of God's word, through prayer and meditation. And when I say meditation, I'm not talking about thinking about myself more. I'm talking about thinking about Jesus more. Scottish pastor from the 1800s named Robert Murray McShane, I think, said this great. He said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Don't dwell on yourself. Dwell on Christ. We do that through, through taking time to read the scriptures, reading books that help us to grow in our understanding of it, to see him more clearly. And it's worth saying, though I, I doubt many of you believe this, this is not just the responsibility of pastors. We, we all should be desiring to grow in this transforming knowledge of God. For the youth here, I think very uniquely, I can say this to you, um, consider Bible school. Really, and if I can be a little bit stronger about it, go, go to Bible school. <laughs> Do at least a year, because I can tell you that my time there absolutely transformed me. Not because of the environment, not because of the people, not because of the fun, but because I saw Christ more clearly in his word. And let me tell you this too, uh, if this church had met me when I was 18 and then had been given the opportunity to vote on me as a 22-year-old, I would not have ended up here. <laughs> because as an 18-year-old, I was a very different person. <laughs> and the Lord used those years in Bible school to transform me. Again, not because of anything I did, but because of seeing him more clearly in his word. Peter here describes Christ as the one who has called us to his own glory and excellence. That word excellence here, it means excellence of character, his virtuousness, his, his sinlessness. And, it comes to our second preposition now, we see that he has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. By Christ's glory and excellence, he has granted us precious and great promises. The Apostle Paul, and I do mean to say Paul this time, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 puts it this way, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. The Lord Jesus is our ultimate assurance of God's promises to us. If you're here this morning and you feel like there is some amount of sin in your life that God could never forgive, that, that you are too far gone, the answer is not to look anymore at yourself, but to look at Christ hanging on the cross, paying the penalty for sin for his people. There is no end to his forgiveness. It is perfect and infinite. 
You might be here this morning doubting that God will actually truly do good for you like he has promised in his word. To which I say, look to Christ. If he gave his son to die, what would he withhold from you? You might fear death, doubting that God can truly raise you from the dead, but he already did it with Jesus. And he promised that for those who put their faith in Christ, he will do it for them too. It's sure, not because of anything good in us, but because of Christ. And, third preposition, it is through these great promises that we may become partakers of the divine nature. That is a really sticky phrase. I, I really, really wish that Peter had not used the phrase partakers of the divine nature, but he did. It's really confusing, um, and, and I think there's a lot of misunderstandings of this phrase. So, so let's address some of those misunderstandings, and then we'll get to what he's actually saying. Uh, so the first thing that he's not saying is that when we die, we get like absorbed into God. That's a very common teaching within Eastern religion that God makes up everything. And if you're good enough upon death, you just kind of rejoin the, the big everything God. That's not what scripture teaches. That is not what Peter is saying here. Second wrong option. Um, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons teach that Christians have the ability to become gods. That if we are faithful, if, if we live good lives, that we will become gods over our own worlds, just like God is now. Not what the Bible teaches at all. Third misunderstanding, and this one is unfortunately a very real teaching in legitimately Christian circles, and it breaks my heart. Um, there is a teaching that, that we are like little gods, possessing some measure of the true God's power. You'll hear this a lot in prosperity gospel, word of faith circles, and I have no lighter word that I can use, but that this is a false teaching. This is a heresy. There is, there is no one like God. We are not like him in any way. He is God and he stands wholly other and we're created. We, we can't be like him. Not in that way. He is the only one who has that power. So what does it mean? Because it's still a really hard phrase. And, and I think if we take up the rest of the New Testament's teaching and we, we put it together with what I think Peter is trying to say, what we see is that being partakers of the divine nature means that Christians will have their character more and more reflect the character of God. In 1 John, the Apostle John puts it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Not in nature, not in power, but in character. We will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are made like God, again, not, not in power or ability, but to reflect his glory in a way that those who don't know Christ never could. Right? I mean, if you're a Christian, you know the reality from, from Genesis 1 and 2. All of humanity is made in God's image. But in our sin, that image is tarnished. It's, it's scarred. It's still there, but it's, it's blurry. But when we put our faith in Jesus, it begins the process of us actually reflecting the image of God rightly. We reflect his glory as Christians in a way that, that unbelieving people never could. And this happens, Peter says, because through Christ we have escaped the sinful corruption of the world. Not yet fully. I mean, right, we're, we're aware of that. We're, we're going to step out these doors into a very broken world in a little bit here. It, it's messy. There is still sin around us. There is still sin in all of us. But in part, we have been freed from that corruption. And, and we can be sure that Peter is right of, about this because this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. In John 17, the words of Jesus praying to his father, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because, you, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, having been delivered from the sinful nature. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
when we put our faith in Christ, we are no longer of this world, but we continue to live here as his ambassadors. We continue to, to live amongst sinful people. But he has prayed, and the reality is that through God's truth, we will be made more like Christ until we see him face to face. So I want to summarize these two verses, and admittedly, I don't think my summary is much shorter than the verses themselves, um, but it really grounds the next stuff that Peter is going to say. So, so here is my best shot at summarizing what we've just walked through. Christ's divine power has granted us all we need for eternal life and holy living, and he grants this through our knowledge of him in his glory and excellence, by which he has secured for us the promises that we will be made more and more like him because we have been set free from the corruption of the world. And now for this reason, continuing at verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So in light of verses 3 and 4, Peter is calling us to supplement our faith. The implication here is that faith is already present, Right? So, so not surprisingly, Peter clearly agrees with the rest of the New Testament teaching, with the rest of the Bible's teaching, that works do not save us, but that works will always flow from faith. They don't come first, but they are going to come after. And so Peter is calling us to make every effort to strive, to work hard, to labor in ourselves, to display these characteristics, these qualities. And again, why? What, what has he said already? Because God has already granted us all that we need to do that. The miracle has been done, and now we must act out that miracle. Speaking of this passage, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, As you have seen the mason take up first one stone and then another, and thus gradually build the house, so are you Christians to take first one virtue and then another and then another and to pile up these stones of grace one upon the other until you have built a palace for the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. Faith, of course, comes first because faith is the foundation of all the graces and there can be no true grace where there is no true faith. So then, let us look at this list of, of virtues, of qualities that Peter has put before us, and let's let God tell us plainly from his word how we ought to live. So again, faith comes first. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, good luck exhibiting any of these qualities for an extended period of time. These flow out of our faith in God, our ability to do these things, because they are not normal for humans. We are not naturally good people. But, for those of you then who have faith, what Peter calls first is for virtue, which, similarly to the word we saw earlier talking about Christ, this is talking about moral excellency. So, Christian, do you desire to live a moral life, to, to please God no matter the cost? Would others see you as one who could be trusted? One who would respond to them with, with patience and love rather than irritability and anger. Do, do you work hard in all that you do to bring honor to God? Do you pursue moral excellency to be someone whose life is exemplary? So virtue, and then he says to, to supplement virtue with knowledge of God as he has revealed in his word. Do you take time to truly know God? Or do you take five minutes here and, and maybe a few days later, another five minutes there? Or, or do you truly act in, in discipline, seeking him 
in a disciplined way, trying to pursue greater knowledge of Him, to know Him through studying His Word and through prayer. And the knowledge, he says, must be supplemented with self-control. I'm going to spend a little more time on this one because I think um, we live in such a, a rich, affluent culture where, quite frankly, we can usually do whatever we want. We, we have lost the virtue of self-control because it's so easy not to be. We've got to talk about it. So, so Christian, are you self-controlled in how you spend your time? I think uh, especially in the age that we are in now, are you thoughtful about the things that you do, or is it just, oh yeah, next, next episode on Netflix, next, next episode on Netflix? Nah, it could be, nope, next episode on Netflix. Are you serious about considering the fact that, that we have limited days? Our lives have an end date, and we only have so much time to serve Christ well. Are you disciplined in how you spend your time? Or, I, I think a, a teaching that the church has really lost are you disciplined in what you eat and drink? I mean, really, Scripture breaks this up surprisingly more than you would think. Uh, the Lord has said that we should be mastered by nothing. That's why Paul says that he beats his body and he makes it his slave. He ensures that nothing will ever have mastery over him, but that he will have total control of how he does things. Are you self-controlled or... or like me, again, I'm, I'm happy to be the first to say, i got to grow in this. If there is candy in our house, I am eating the entire bag. And it, that sounds funny, but I have to be very worried. That's sin. I am being mastered by candy. That's crazy. But, but all of us have these things that if we are not cautious, they will take control. Husbands, are you self-controlled in your tempers? Or are you quick to be harsh with your wives? using words that, that you know are not befitting to speak to her. Worse yet, do you feel violent impulses because you can't control your own anger? That's not what the Lord has called us to. We are to love self-sacrificially, to lay down our lives for our wives, to love them like Christ did. That takes a lot of self-control. Or on the other end, because this is the way that I tend, are you self-controlled in your ability to stop being lazy? Because I would love to just go home at the end of a lot of days and just lay on the couch for a few hours. But it takes self-control to go, I'm, I'm actually, I know my wife is tired. I'm going to cook this meal. I'm going to do these dishes. I'm going to do the laundry so she doesn't have to worry about it. I'm going to lead spiritually in our home. I'm going to take that initiative and I'm going to be self-controlled enough to put my laziness to death. Wives, are you self-controlled in your speech? In the way that you talk about your children? in the way that you talk about your friends, in the way that you talk about your husbands to others? Or do you just vent and say things that might not even be totally true, but you, you just want to get out that emotional moment? Are you self-controlled in what you say so that you are honoring to others? Are you self-controlled in your parenting, patient with your kids, showing them what it means to, to sin, but then confess, to, to apologize to them because of impatient outbursts? Teens, I've talked to you before, and I'll do it again today. Uh, are you self-controlled in your use of social media? Because here's the reality. I'm not that much older than you, so I know the draw. I open up the YouTube app on my phone. I click the YouTube shorts thing. And before I know it, I've watched 60, 60-second clips, and an hour of my day is gone. Are you self-controlled in how you use social media? Or is it mastering you? Are you self-controlled in your use of, of video games, of other forms of entertainment? Or are you losing whole days because you're not thinking about how you're spending your time? Are you self-controlled in your language? Or do words just come out of you when you're stressed, when you're upset? Words that you know do not honor the Lord. It's hard. It's hard, but it's what we are being called to by the word of God. And so with that self-control, Peter calls us also to steadfastness. Are you willing to endure mocking for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to be the one who stands on the truth in a culture that tells you that that is hateful? Are you willing to be the one to, to risk the relational capital to actually share the gospel with somebody, to, to care enough about them, to tell them the message, even though they might think you're weird for it? Do you have the steadfastness to be patient in trials, to trust God when nothing makes sense, 
when the world completely feels like it's collapsing in? Do you, do you default to cursing God or to just faithful trust that he won't let go? With steadfastness, he calls us to godliness. Do you live your life aware of the reality of God? Are you in prayer? Are you fleeing from sin? I don't just mean rejecting it. I mean actively seeing, no, if I go there, I will be tempted to do something, so I'm not even going to go there. I am fleeing from sin. And on the other side, are you pursuing holiness? Do you hear this list and go, I got work to do. I've got things to do. I have got to live my life in a way that honors my Lord. With godliness comes brotherly affection. When you come on Sunday mornings, do you come just to to slip in a few minutes late and, and slip out a few minutes early? Or do you come to actively care for your brothers and sisters in Christ? To love them enough to take the time to see how they're doing, to to see how their walk with the Lord is going. When you initiate conversations, are, are you hoping that those people will meet your needs or are you hoping that you can step in and meet some of theirs? And finally, to brotherly affection, he says, we must add love. Christian, is your life characterized by love? Not our culture's false definition of love that just means tolerating literally anything, but a love that truly desires the good of the other person above yourself. A love that will step in and have hard conversations because you know it's for their good. No, Siri. (laughs) What? (laughs) A love that, that honestly just decides, I will die if it means the other person will live. A love that reflects the love of Christ for his people. This is heavy, but it's good. It's good that the Bible calls us to this because it is how we look more like Jesus. And there is nobody else that we want to look more like. And so maybe the bigger question that stands above all of this is do you desire these things? Do you hear this list of of qualities and go, I'm good. I really like my life how it is. Or do you go, yes, Lord, I want that. Because if you do, hear what Peter is saying. You do not have these things in you naturally. They are given to you by God. So strive, absolutely, pursue these things. But more than that, pray. Flee to the Lord for strength. When you fail, go to him in confession and pray that he would make your heart look more like his. Because none of us are naturally this way. But God does that miracle in us. And, Peter says, if these are true of you, they are what will keep you from being ineffective in your knowledge. So he's taking another shot at the Gnostics, right? He's saying, oh great, they might say they have this good secret knowledge, but look at their lives. They're ineffective. They might have knowledge, but they're they're missing the point. But but we can hear this too. What Peter is saying is that Christ-likeness without knowledge is impossible, and knowledge without Christ-likeness is ineffective, can't be one or the other. We must both know Christ and we must live like Christ. Otherwise, we're, we're defective as Christians. We're, we're missing the core elements of the Christian life. And Peter's words for these who do not have these qualities, it, they're harsh, but they're true. If you lack these qualities, he's saying you're failing to live like the gospel is true. He says, you're, you're blind. You're living as if, as if you don't believe that Christ's death makes it possible for you to flee from sin. You're acting like your sins have not been forgiven. You're, you're living like you are rejecting everything that is true in Scripture. But I want to end this morning where Peter ends, which I think is with a warning and a promise. Verses 10 and 11 Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, so in light of everything else that he has said, confirm 
your calling and election. Now, we don't use these words like the biblical authors do, so we've got to kind of reframe our thinking a bit. When you see the word calling in Scripture, it is not talking about like, oh, I felt called to pastoral ministry, or I felt called to this job or to move to this place. Both calling and election are salvation words in Scripture. He is saying that you have been called by God to salvation. So he's saying, confirm through the way that you live that you have truly been called by him. And I I think that there are some in this room who need to hear this this morning as a warning. Because what Peter is saying is that if you call yourself a Christian, but your life doesn't show it, you shouldn't be so sure that you truly are one. And we've got to address these things. You might have walked down the aisle at an evangelistic crusade 50 years ago and felt like that was the moment you became a Christian. You might have raised your hand at a youth conference as an 18-year-old and felt like that was the moment that you became a Christian. You might have even prayed the prayer with someone. You might have been baptized. You might have become a member in a church. But walking an aisle doesn't save you. Prayer doesn't save you. Baptism and membership don't save you. It is faith in Jesus Christ that he says is shown in repentance and belief. That is what saves you. So I, I feel a great tension having to say these things, but, but I trust that there are people here who need to hear it. Any of those situations where you believe you became a Christian might have been true of you, and in that moment, it might have felt real. It might have felt like your emotions were at a peak and that you believed, but if your life has never shown any fruit, you've never delighted in God, you've never felt conviction of sin, you've never desired to be with his people, to worship him, you've never seen these traits building in you, these these fruits of the Holy Spirit, you've never shared your faith with anybody. If these things haven't happened, Peter is saying, you have no confirmation And I realize this sounds harsh. But but before us today is this reality. I think we live in a country and in a time in human history where calling yourself a Christian has been really easy. And I think that a lot of people in the North American church, they've been happy to to pray a prayer once, to to essentially treat Jesus like a get-out-of-hell-free card and move on. But what Peter is saying here gives us an opportunity to truly examine ourselves. To truly look at our lives and ask if there is the fruit that he says that we should expect in the Christian's life. Because there there are two realities. Two realities ahead. And they could come at any moment. Because I'm 24 years old and my heart could stop right now. I could drop dead on this stage. It could just happen. No idea why. It just could. And that's true of everybody in this room. And the Lord says that that for each man it is appointed once to die and then comes judgment. And so I would be an unfaithful pastor if I did not plead with you this morning and realize that there are two options before you. It is Jesus and life or everything else the world offers and death, eternal separation from God in hell. And I fear that there are people in this room who have called themselves Christians for 40 years 50 years, who have never actually put their faith in Christ and repented of their sins. So I plead with you this morning, don't, don't pass this opportunity up. Don't just go, oh, oh yeah, I, no, I know, I know for sure. Examine yourself. See if there are the qualities in you that Peter would expect that confirm your calling and election. Because it is life and death. That is what is before you this morning in God's word, is life or death. But I said, there is here both a warning and a promise. Because then, for those of you who see this fruit, the the people who, who God has given you that confirmation, as Paul will say in Romans 8, that your spirit testifies within you that you have become a child of God. 
Hear the promise that Peter lays out for us. You will never fall. There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are absolutely secure in Jesus. He is doing amazing things in you to make you more like him. He is doing miracles. He has made you alive. You have been reborn, regenerated. He has changed your will. He took you out of slavery to sin and brought you into his family, made you his brother and sister as children of his father. That's his promise. And that has come because his divine power has granted you all that you need. So draw near. Trust in him, receive from him, and live confidently knowing that he will use you to bear fruit for his kingdom and his glory. Your calling and election are confirmed and they are secure, not because of anything you've done, but because Christ has done all that is needed to secure them. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we, as we sit under your word this morning, Father, I pray for any here who maybe this, this was what they needed, this, this moment to actually look back on their life and examine if they have truly repented and put their faith in Christ. Father, open their eyes if that is not true of them. Open their eyes if they do not truly know you through your Son. Lord, draw them to yourself today. And Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, undoubtedly the majority of the people here who desire to love you, to serve you, to honor you. I ask that, that we would see this reality, that Christ's divine power has given us all that we need, that we would be a people who, who pursue these qualities wholeheartedly, but, but more than that, that we rest in Christ's ability to bring them about in us. Use us for your glory. Use us to be those who pass on this beautiful knowledge to more and more people. Lord, we know your promises do not fail. And so we trust them this morning. And we thank you that it is not by our own goodness, not by our own works, but by the goodness and the work of Jesus Christ that we can trust you. Amen.